Let us pray. O gracious God and most merciful Father, who has vouchsafed us the rich and precious jewel of thy holy word, assist us with thy spirit that it may be written in our hearts to our everlasting comfort, to reform us, to renew us according to thine own image, to build us up into the perfect building of thy Christ, and to increase us in all heavenly virtues. Grant this, O Heavenly Father, for the same Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Well, popular subject today, the subject of paying taxes, an appropriate one for January. So if you have your Bibles, if you would go ahead and open them up to Matthew chapter 17. And we're going to go ahead and read through verses 22 through the end of the chapter. And as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. And when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax, from their sons or from others? And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Well, this event takes place uh, immediately following, at least according to Matthew's narrative, immediately following the transfiguration. You know that Jesus had taken three of his disciples with him, Peter, James, and John, up on a mountain. They'd had this extraordinary experience where they had seen Jesus transformed. The text says transfigured before their eyes. They heard the Father speak. They saw Moses and Elijah bearing witness to Jesus. We talked about what they were discussing Those three great figures, they were discussing Jesus' departure that he was to accomplish in Jerusalem. And we said that's significant because it follows right on the heels of Peter's confession in which he says, you are the Christ. And when Jesus goes on to explain what it means to be the Christ, Peter doesn't like that. So over and over again, Jesus has to keep reinforcing this idea that he has come to this earth to mount the arms of the cross and to pay the price for sin. He does that with Peter when he rebuked Peter. That message comes through here on the Mount of Transfiguration. It comes through in the first part of the lesson that we just read a moment ago. Uh, We're told that as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And this time they don't say, God forbid, this must not happen to you, but we're told they were nevertheless greatly distressed. They still didn't understand completely, fully, the necessity of the cross. I would go so far as to say they would not understand the necessity of the cross until the resurrection. But nevertheless, Jesus is pressing this upon them. You and I have an advantage over the disciples at this point because we live on this side of Easter, whereas they were living at the time that these words were being spoken on that side of the Easter event. Well, it was as they were coming down off the mountain and venturing back into Galilee, we're told, coming close to Capernaum, which had become sort of their headquarters for Jesus' ministry in this portion of Galilee, we're told that they were met by the tax collectors who had a question for Peter, Jesus' follower, about the two drachma 
tax. Now, if you know anything about the New Testament and anything about Jews living in the first century, you know that the Jews despise tax collectors. Tax collectors, I think, are universally despised. I don't think, I don't think it matters what the culture or what the time or what the circumstances. Nobody likes really to pay taxes. Even if we recognize that it is necessary, we don't like to do it. And we're always convinced that the taxes are too high, aren't we? So the reality was people in Jesus' day didn't like tax collectors either. In particular, they didn't like the Roman tax collectors or the Jewish tax collectors who worked for the Romans. And, and that's often the way it was. One of the, the ways that the Romans worked in order to maintain the peace is that when they conquered an area, they would oftentimes allow the local leaders to remain in power so long as they served the interests of the empire rather than displace those local leaders with their own people, which would have caused all kinds of an uproar, what they would do is they would allow these local leaders to remain in place so long as they served the needs of the emperor and his plans. That's one of the reasons, for example, why King Herod remained in control, even though there was a Roman governor of that province, Pontius Pilate. Nevertheless, Herod was allowed to continue to rule and, and to maintain his position because he served the needs and the interests of the Roman Empire. Well, there were tax collectors in this day, and some of the Jews would work as tax collectors. Uh, the Romans would use them, rather than have their own tax collectors, they would use Jews. But these Jews were despised by their fellow Jews. And they were despised because they were viewed as collaborators. They were viewed as people who were Jewish, but who were working for the enemy. In much the way, for example, that uh, people living in France might, for example, collaborate with the Nazis during World War II. They were absolutely hated and despised by the French who were in the resistance. Um, one of the other reasons why tax collectors were often despised by the Jews is not only because they collaborated with the Romans, but they were notoriously dishonest. They would oftentimes collect uh, more tax than was required. And because they had the authority of the Roman Empire, there was nothing that could be done about it. So tax collectors tended to be wealthy, much wealthier than most of the other people. They would collect more tax than was required, send on the allotted amount to Rome, and pocket the rest. So tax collectors were absolutely hated. We said it's one of the extraordinary things that Matthew, the author of this gospel, was called to be one of Jesus' disciples because he was a tax collector. He was a tax collector. But it's important to understand that the tax that is being referred to here in Matthew chapter 17 is not that kind of an imperial tax. Matthew, in the old versions, is referred to not merely as a tax collector, he's referred to as a publican. He was one of those tax collectors who was Jewish, but nevertheless worked for the Romans. When Jesus and his disciples here in Capernaum encounter tax collectors, these are not Roman officials. These are Jewish officials, and they're not Jews working for the Romans. The tax here that is being levied against the disciples is not an imperial tax at all. It was a tax for the upkeep of the temple in Jerusalem. So this is a very different kind of tax. This was, in fact, a biblically mandated tax that every Jewish man 20 years of age and older, was expected to pay, and by this point, it is being paid on an annual basis. You had to pay it at least once in your life. After that, it was voluntary. Some people were accepted from this. Rabbis, for example, were accepted. But most people paid the temple tax. 
for the upkeep of the temple. It had been set forth as law in the book of Exodus where it was referred to as the half-shekel tax. The idea was that every Jew had a responsibility to maintain the temple. This was the place where God dwelt symbolically with His people. It was the Old Testament's way of saying, hey, listen, folks, church is expensive. And it was then and it is now. I mean, we sent out this little card that said, did you know? Many people don't know how much it costs to actually run this place. To, to pay the electric bill. Can you imagine what an electric bill is on a place like this? Or the water bill and all of those sorts of things? That money does not come from heaven. Pennies may come from heaven, but the money to run the church does not, I can assure you. Well, running the temple was very expensive in the ancient world as well. The priests had to wear elaborate vestments, for example. Those vestments would wear out. They had to be replaced. They were oftentimes jewel-encrusted and gold and brocade and that sort of thing. That thing had to be replaced. The candles had to be replaced. The linens, when they wore out, they had to be replaced. The same sort of thing that we deal with today. And so this tax was levied against individuals for the upkeep of the temple. So this was a Jewish tax. It was not an imperial tax. It was called the two drachma tax because in the Old Testament it was called the half shekel. And two drachmas equaled one half shekel. Now the situation is this. Jesus comes into Capernaum, apparently goes into the house. Peter encounters these two tax collectors collecting the two drachma tax. And their question to Peter is this, how about your teacher? How about your rabbi? We know that the rabbis are exempted from paying the tax to the temple, but you know, every patriotic Jew pays the tax. So here's the question, does your master pay the tax? And you almost get the impression when you read through the narrative that Peter feels a little challenged at this point. And he immediately blurts out, yes. Yes, he does. You know, Peter was that kind of person. We've seen him more than once blurt something out without even thinking. And he immediately blurts out, yes, he does. And then what does he do? He goes into the, into the house, and you can almost hear him saying, uh, Jesus, i got a question for you. Um, do you pay that tax? Because I was just asked by some tax collectors if you paid the tax, and I said, you do pay the tax. And what does Jesus do? How does he respond? Well, Jesus uses this as an opportunity to teach Peter. Jesus was always looking for teaching opportunities. Teach him about who he was and what he had come to do. He said those are the two things that are absolutely essential. If you're going to be a Christian, you need to understand who Jesus is. You need to understand what he had come to do. Over and over again, Jesus has been enforcing those two points. He's been enforcing what he'd come to do, that he was going to go to Jerusalem and die and be raised again. Now he is emphasizing who he is. And he uses this question about taxes as an opportunity to do so. Jesus said to him, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when Peter said from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. What was Jesus saying here? Well, Jesus was reminding Peter that royalty doesn't pay tax. Remember that in the ancient world, there were no democracies. 
Democracy is a relatively new thing. You and I have all lived under it, but America was really the first practical democracy. Now, there, some people will say there was the Greek Republic and so forth, but what we would call a modern democracy began with America. I mean, that, that's one of the reasons why Abraham Lincoln in November of 1863 said four score and seven years ago. What was that a reference to? 1776. Independence. That's what that was a reference to. He was harking back to the beginning, to this great experiment in democracy. And there was the great question whether or not it was going to survive. I mean, this was a new thing. All of Europe was ruled by what? Monarchs by kings and emperors and crowned heads. The same was true in the ancient world. There was no such thing as a democracy. These were crowned heads, and crowned heads were absolute rulers in the ancient world. There were no such things as constitutional monarchs. Kings did not run for re-election. They were absolute rulers. And because they were absolute rulers, they didn't pay tribute, they received it. Monarchs never paid taxes in the ancient world. It's interesting to note that until relatively recently, the British monarchy didn't pay taxes. Queen Elizabeth did not start paying taxes, or the royal family start paying taxes until the 1990s, when Windsor Castle experienced a massive fire, and it was going to cost multi-millions of dollars in order to restore it. And so there was a hue and a cry, why should the the country paid for that, it's the queen's residence and so forth, and so the monarchy began to pay taxes. But up to that point, the British monarchy, the whole way up to the dawn of the 21st century, was exempt from paying taxes. Because kings don't pay taxes, they receive the tax. And that also means that, of course, a king's son is not going to be taxed either, is he? Because he's part of the royal family. So what is Jesus saying here? He's saying, Peter, for whom is this tax collected? Peter would have said, well, it's for the temple. And Jesus would have said, and, and, and whose house is the temple? Well, the temple is God's house. And Jesus said, well, tell me, do royalty, do royal sons have to pay tax? And Peter says, well, no. And Jesus said, well, then the sons are free. This is Jesus' way of saying, Peter, you need to understand who I am. You're asking me the question, do I pay tax? I am the son of the king. And if I'm the son of the king, I am what? Exempt from paying the tax. See, this is Jesus' way of enforcing who he is in addition to what he had come to do. So it was a teaching about his divinity. It was a teaching about his relationship with Jesus or with the Father. But here's what's interesting. Having made the point that, well, other people needed to pay the tax... And he was exempt because he was the king's son. Jesus nevertheless goes on and tells Peter to pay the tax. Now why does he do that? He's already made the point that he is exempt. So why does he insist that Peter go ahead and pay the tax for himself and for Jesus? Look again at verse 26. And when Peter said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Jesus acknowledges the fact that he is exempt from paying the tax, but he is willing to pay the tax in order not to 
to give offense. This is a wonderful reminder to us as Christians not to be offensive just in order to be right. There is a value, my friends, to inoffensive behavior. We are sometimes so eager to stand on our rights that what we ultimately do is we undermine our witness as Christian people. Jesus in no way denies the fact that you and I have rights. Read through the Sermon on the Mount. But what Jesus does say is that for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the kingdom, we are willing to subordinate our rights. Nay, even surrender our rights for the sake of that which is more important. Jesus understood very well that if he got into a debate about, with the Jewish religious leaders about paying the tax, he might very well win. In fact, nobody ever won when Jesus had a debate with them. But in winning the battle, he could very well lose the war. You ever consider that? It's possible to win the battle and lose the war. I'm going to confess to you a story I am ashamed of to this very day. Um, my father, when he was alive, um, came to church one day when I was celebrating Holy Communion. And... Um, sat through the service, and then that Sunday afternoon we were having dinner in our dining room at our house, and at one point my father said, um, son, can I make a small suggestion to you? And I said, sure. And he said, you're mispronouncing a word in the liturgy. And I said, oh, really? What word is that? And he said, it is the word saith. The Lord saith. S-A-I-T-H. And he said, you're mispronouncing that. And I said, well, how am I saying? He's saying, you're saying Seth, the Lord Seth. He said, it's the Lord saith. And I said, no, it's not. <laughs> and he said, yes, it is. <laughs> and I said, no, it's not. Now, this seems like a little thing, but you have to understand my family. So uh, <laughs> at any rate, he's saying saith, I'm saying Seth. Now, I knew I was right because I'd gone to seminary, and he hadn't. I should have left it there. I should have left it there. We're all there. The whole family's there, extended family's there. He's trying to speak to his son in love. You just need to correct this word. I should have said, okay, Dad, thank you for the advice. I'll do it. Instead, I went to the library and pulled out the dictionary. And I came up, and I opened it up, and I showed him that that old English word, saith, is to be pronounced Seth. And I embarrassed him in front of everybody in the room. It was devastating. I won the battle, but I lost the war. And we have to remember that it's possible to do that as Christian people. And so you have to choose your battles carefully. You cannot die on every hill, so be careful about the ones that you are prepared to die on. And that's what Jesus was saying to Peter. I am exempt, but let's not give offense. This is not a hill on which we are prepared to die. And so he said, go and pay the tax. This is so important 
as Christians, the most important thing for us must be Jesus, and it must be the cause of Jesus. I'll give you another illustration. You all remember that back in the 1990s when the State House still was flying the Confederate battle flag, I had a lady that used to come up to me, and she was a thorn in my side. I mean, she, would, she just used to come up to me, and she always wanted to need her. She was just one of those sort of people that just always wanted to purposely get under your skin. She was always provoking an argument. She just, just loved to do that. And she knew that I had been an historian of that time period, worked for the National Park Service and so forth, and so she, she wanted to know what I thought about this. Now, I knew where she was coming from, and I knew that I didn't have exactly the same perspective as she did. But I also recognized that if I got into an argument with her about that, she was never going to listen if I took a different position to anything that I had to say about the gospel. That didn't mean that I didn't have an opinion. It didn't mean that I was right then, too. It just meant that I realized that the gospel was far more important than the battle flag. And so I was willing to just not engage her in conversation. I, I just refused. I loved her, and believe me, that was an act of the will. <laughs> but I loved her, but I refused to engage in the conversation with her for the simple reason that I knew that if I took a position that she didn't like, that would be enough for her to just disregard everything else that I had to say. I had an opinion, but the gospel was more important still. We have to remember that. We have our own private opinions. You're entitled to your own private opinions. You may be right, but if those opinions are not of the same level of importance as the gospel, and winning that battle will cause you to lose the gospel war, then you need to subordinate your own desires, your own feelings, your own rights, your own opinions to that of the gospel so as not to give offense to that. And that's not an easy thing to do if you're strong-willed. But that is exactly what Jesus was calling Peter and the others to do. Go and pay the tax. Bishop J.C. Ryle was one of the great lights of the Church of England at the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century. He was the Bishop of Liverpool. And this is what he had to say about the subject. He said, There are matters in which Christ's people ought to sink their own opinions and submit to the requirements which they may not thoroughly approve rather than give offense and hinder the gospel of Christ. God's rights, undoubtedly, we ought never to give up, but we may sometimes safely give up our own. It may sound very fine and seem very heroic to be always tenaciously for our rights, but it may well be doubted with such a passage as this whether such tenacity is always wise and shows the mind of Christ. There are occasions when it shows more grace in a Christian to submit than to resist. Now let me tell you, that's a hard message for Americans to hear because we love to stand on our rights. I have a right to this. Well, as I said, we have our rights, but Jesus says we give up those rights for the sake of Him and for His kingdom. 
Now, I want to go off on a little bit of a tangent here because this whole issue of taxes does raise some important questions, questions about the Christian's relationship to the state, the Christian's responsibility, for example, to those in authority and to the government. Some people have argued that it was appropriate for Jesus to pay this tax because it was a temple tax. It was a tax for the upkeep of the house of worship. But it would not have been appropriate for Jesus or his disciples to pay the imperial tax because that was for the upkeep of a pagan polytheistic entity. Well, how about it? Do we only pay taxes and tribute to those organizations we agree with? Or if the government, even if it is corrupt, do we have a responsibility to support that government as well? It's an important question, isn't it? And it is a question that Christians have debated over the course of the centuries. So how do we answer it? Well, the best way to answer it, of course, doesn't really matter what other Christians have said. The best way to answer it is to go back to what God himself has said in his word about this subject. I want you to notice how Jesus puts it here in Matthew. In verse 24, he says, When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? And he said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? Peter was asking a question about a specific tax, the tax for the upkeep of the temple. But when Jesus asks the question about paying taxes, he doesn't say simply that specific tax. He says, from whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? In other words, Jesus expands the question about taxes from just being specifically about the two drachma tax to all taxes. The word that is translated here as tolls is the word tele. It can also be translated as duties. It would be the local tax, the sales tax, tax on imported goods. Jesus asks the question, not just about the two drachma tax, he said, what about the taxes on local goods? And then Jesus doesn't just use the word toll here, he uses the word tax, which is kensos. That word means a head tax, the kind of tax by which you would have an income tax, for example. So Jesus is not just talking about a specific tax in particular, he's talking about taxes in general. And I say this is an important subject for us to wrestle with, and it comes out of the text because what is interesting is that many scholars believe that this Gospel of Matthew, the most Jewish of all the Gospels, was written after the year 70 A.D. Now what happened in the year 70 A.D.? Jerusalem was sacked by the Romans under the general Titus, city was raised, 100,000 people were put to the sword, the temple was destroyed. The only portion of the temple that remains to this day as a result of that destruction is the outer retaining wall, which Jews today call the Wailing Wall. The temple was absolutely destroyed. The two drachma tax was for the what? For the maintenance of the temple. Once the temple is gone, were Jews expected to pay the two drachma tax? It's a trick question. Yes, they were. 
It was imposed by the Emperor Vespasian. And he insisted that the two drachma tax still be paid by the Jews, but no longer would it be for the upkeep of the temple which had been destroyed. It would be for the upkeep of the temple to Jupiter in Rome. So if Matthew is recording all of these events after that fact, and he includes this story, he's talking about more than just submitting to legitimate authority, isn't he? What about illegitimate authority? This is the question that was put to Jesus later on in this same gospel. Keep your finger there in Matthew chapter 17 and skip ahead to Matthew chapter 22 for just a moment. Matthew chapter 22, verse 15. You're familiar with this story, I'm sure. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted how to entangle Jesus in his own words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? That's a very different question, you see, than should we pay taxes to support the temple? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Well, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and they went away. Apparently Jesus was saying on this particular occasion, and we'll come back to this in a moment, but apparently Jesus was saying if it has Caesar's image on it, then give it to Caesar. And ever since that time, Christians have understood that yes, we have a responsibility to pay taxes. And it's not just taxes to those organizations that we agree with, but even those we do not agree with. We have a responsibility to uphold those who are in authority. Now, as I said, this has been a subject of great debate amongst Christians over the years. Back in the 1960s, there was a neo-Orthodox theologian, a German theologian actually, but working out of New York City, out of Union Theological Seminary. His name was, D, was H. Richard Niebuhr, and he wrote a classic book which was entitled Christ and Culture. And he said, historically, there have been five basic views. There's been a continuum with five basic views as to how Christians are to respond to the culture around them and to the civil authorities, to the state. And those five views are these, Christ against culture, Christ of culture, Christ above culture, Christ and culture in paradox, and Christ the transformer of culture. And let me just give you a brief definition of each of those categories. Christ against culture, he says, has been one response that believers throughout the centuries have had to the authority and the power of the state. This view holds that all expressions of the culture outside of the church are viewed with a high degree of suspicion and is irreparably corrupted by sin. They are to be withdrawn from and avoided as much as possible. Traditional ascetic communities, as well as various sectarian and fundamentalist groups, would hold to some version of this view. A great example of this would be the Amish, for example. They believe that the culture is completely corrupt, and the best thing that you can do is what? Withdraw from that culture and avoid it as much as possible. That's been one view. 
that Christians, as much as possible, should withdraw from the state, withdraw from the government, not have anything to do, form some sort of sectarian or monastic community. Here's the second view, Christ of culture. Christ of culture sits at the polar opposite from the previous view. Cultural expressions as a whole are accepted uncritically, and they are celebrated as a good thing. In theory, little or no conflict is seen as existing between the culture and Christian truth. In practice, the latter is compromised to accommodate the former. This is the view espoused in antiquity by classic Gnosticism and by many mainline Protestant denominations in the 20th century. Accommodationism. Here's the third view, Christ above culture. Christ above culture is a medial position between the first two. It regards cultural expressions as basically good as far as they go. However, they need to be augmented and perfected by Christian revelation and the work of the church with Christ supreme over both. This view is expounded by Thomas Aquinas and has been the predominant position among Roman Catholics ever since. Here's the fourth view, Christ and culture and paradox. Christ and culture and paradox is another medial option between the extremes. It sees human culture as a good creation that has been tainted by sin. And as a result, there's a tension in the Christian's relationship to culture, simultaneously embracing and rejecting certain aspects of it. Augustine, as well as Martin Luther and Soren Kierkegaard, are representatives of this view. Now here's the fifth view that Niebuhr suggested, Christ the transformer of culture. Christ the transformer of culture is yet another medial alternative. It also recognizes human culture as initially good and subsequently corrupted by the fall. But since Christ is redeeming all of creation, the Christian can and should work to transform the culture to the glory of God. This is the view held in part again by Augustine, but as well by John Calvin and those of the Reformed tradition. Now I said this is a continuum, and what I want to suggest to you is that while these categories are helpful, I want to propose to you some categories that I think might be even better. Uh, Niebuhr had a lot of good things to say, but he was a product of his time. He was also a product of his tradition. He was a neo-Orthodox theologian, and there are some problems with that view. So what I want to do right now in the time that we have remaining, about 25 minutes, is for you to skip from Matthew. You don't even have to put your finger in Matthew. We're going to go ahead to Romans, to Romans chapter 13. This whole question about the authority of the state, paying taxes to Caesar and so forth, is an important one. Jesus touches on it here. It's a place for us to launch into a fuller discussion, and that fuller discussion is made by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 13. So that's what I want us to take a look at for the rest of the time that we have together. Now here's what Paul says about the Christian and his relationship to the state, and this would apply to paying taxes. What if the government is corrupt? What do we do about that? Well, listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 13. He says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. 
For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed." Does Paul say, let every person be subject to the legitimate authorities, to the godly authorities? He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And then he goes on to say something extraordinary. He says, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Some years ago, there was a bumper sticker that was quite fashionable. You used to see it all around Charleston. This was when I first started out here. The bumper sticker said, Question Authority. Did you ever see that bumper sticker? Question Authority. I always thought that was interesting. It didn't say, Question Bad Authority. It didn't say, Question Illegitimate Authority. It didn't say, Question Corrupt Authority. It said, Question What? Authority. All authority. As though authority is a bad thing. What Paul says is that you and I, as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, are not to question authority. We are to be what? Subject to authority. Now, here's the first thing you need to understand that Paul is saying. Paul is saying you need to understand God is sovereign. He is sovereign over the affairs of men and nations. If there are authorities, they only exist because God allows them to exist. And that's true of godly authorities, and it is true of ungodly authorities. If you say, well, God would never allow a Hitler to exist, then what you're really saying is God does not have authority or power. What you're really saying is God is not sovereign. You know, sometimes what God does is He gives us what we want. You know... That, 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 that's one of the beauties of democracy. You get the leaders you deserve. <laughs> now, let's be honest, that's exactly what happens. You get the leaders you deserve because you elect them. Whether you like them or not, you get what you deserve. So the first thing Paul is saying is, God is sovereign over the affairs of men and nations. And therefore, if he allows an authority to exist, we are to be subject to it. God establishes authorities. And this is made very clear when you read through the Scripture. For example, if you go back to the book of Exodus, to the story of God leading His people out of their captivity in Egypt, one of the things that He makes very clear is that He raised up Pharaoh. God allowed Pharaoh to exist. Pharaoh didn't exist over and against God. He did, but He didn't exist there because He was more powerful than God and God couldn't do anything about it. God allowed Pharaoh to exist. We're also told that God raised up and used Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, in the book of Daniel. Cyrus of Persia was a pagan leader, and yet he is referred to as God's instrument, God's Messiah. 
That's the, that's the language that he would use for Christ. And even Jesus acknowledged Pontius Pilate's authority. You remember when Jesus was standing before Pontius Pilate in the trial? And Pilate said, I want you to say something to me. I don't find any fault with you, but you need to say something to me. You're, you're standing here silent like a, a lamb before its shearer. Say something to me. Don't you realize that I have the power and the authority to execute you or to free you? Remember that? And how did Jesus respond to that? Jesus didn't say, no, you don't. Jesus said, you would have no authority had it not been given to you from above. Now that's an interesting response because what Jesus is doing is acknowledging that Pilate does have authority. He doesn't say you don't have authority. What he says is you would not have the authority you have had it not been given to you from above. So even Jesus acknowledges that Pontius Pilate, this pagan Roman prefect, had authority. And that's the point that Paul is making here. Now, of course, there are still a lot of lingering questions. If we are to be subject to the authorities, what if a government is illegitimate? Or for that matter, how do we know if a government is legitimate? I mean, what if there is a military coup and the government is overthrown and a new government is established? Which is the legitimate government? That's a serious question, isn't it? Or is it ever right? Paul says be subject to the governing authorities, but is it ever right to rebel against an unjust government? I know we say yes, but what does Paul say? Be subject to the governing authorities. On the other hand, if you say, well, then no, it's not right, what do you do with the American Revolution? Should we have paid that tax on tea? Or that tax on paper? Was King George a legitimate authority? Should we have been subject to that authority? See, these are serious questions. Is it ever right to rebel at all? <laughs> we say yes, but it's not enough to say yes. You've got to have a reason for it. Well, we're not there. What does Paul say? See, these are serious questions. And again, it comes back to our rights. Well, I have certain rights. Are we prepared to... To subordinate those rights. Jesus was willing to do that. These are the questions we have to wrestle with. At what point does an unjust ruler become a legitimate ruler? In other words, a ruler stages a coup, overcomes a government, establishes himself. He reigns for 10 years. He dies. His son reigns for 20 years. For 30 years, there's been a government. It was illegitimate at the beginning. Has it become legitimate now? At what point? Do you see, do these things become legitimate? These are the lingering questions. And here's the final one. Are we to obey in all things? Now some of you are out there just heaving a sigh. These are important questions, you see. And why, the reason I want you to wrestle with these a little bit, and I'm going to bring some clarity hopefully, but one of the reasons I want you to wrestle with this, as Christians, we cannot fragment our lives or compartmentalize our lives. As Christians, we approach the world as Christians. You know, people will sometimes come up to me and, they, you know, again, they want to engage in conversation. They're curious about my politics. And they'll come up and they'll say, are you a Republican? 
you sound like a Republican. But then you talk about the environment. I don't know, maybe you're a Democrat. I don't know. What, what are you? You want to know what I am? You want to know what my political party is? I'm going to tell you what my political party is right now, so you can write it down. I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. I, I, I do not approach politics or life or any of those things as a Republican or as a Democrat. There are many of the things about which the Republican Party stands that I agree with. And there are things, quite frankly, that some of the Democrats say that I said there's some, there's some merit to what they're arguing. But you see, what we want to do is put people in a particular box. It's all or nothing. But as Christians, we cannot approach life that way. Our first loyalty is not to the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. Our first loyalty has to be to what? Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, He is first above all else. And so when we wrestle with these issues of authority, we have to wrestle with our relationship with Jesus Christ and how that intersects with all of these other things. Christianity is not a part of who you are. It is the air you breathe. It is the lens from which you view all or through which you view all of life. Well, I'm happy to say that we're not left in, dark, in the dark about some of these questions. Jesus himself gives us an answer, and it's there in Matthew. So keep your finger there in Romans, and now turn back to Matthew, but not to where we were, but to Matthew chapter 22. Let's go back to that story of paying taxes to Caesar, because Jesus' response is very helpful. Verse 18, but Jesus, aware of their malice, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Jesus knew that this was a trick question. The belief was this, that no matter how Jesus answered that question, somebody was going to be angry with him. On the one hand, if he says, yes, it's right to pay taxes to Caesar, then people would have said, see, he's no friend of, of, of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. On the other hand, if he said, it's not right to pay taxes to Caesar, then they would have said, see, he's a rebel. He's plotting against the Roman Empire. Either way, they thought they would have been rid of him. But how does Jesus respond? It's, it's a very interesting way that Jesus responds. He says, show me a coin. And they produced the coin that was used to pay the tax. And Jesus said, whose image is on it? And they said, Caesar's. Now, most Roman coins, and I don't know, the text doesn't say this, but most Roman coins had an image of the emperor on the front, just like British coins today have a picture of the monarch on the front. But on the back of a Roman coin, there was normally a picture of a deity. So for all I know, Jesus said, okay, well, whose picture's on it? Caesar's. Turn it over. Who's, whose face is on it? Well, a god. This may have been Jesus' way of saying, hey, look, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but you give to God what belongs to him. The coin bore Caesar's image. You and I, having been made in the image of God, bear whose image? God's image. It's the imago Dei. Jesus was saying, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but you, because you bear the imprint of God, you give to God what belongs to Him, namely yourself. This is Jesus' way of saying that, yes, you are to give to Caesar, but your higher 
loyalty, your higher allegiance must be to God Himself. So I want to come back to those categories. We've looked at those categories of Christ and culture by Niebuhr. I want to suggest to you that in light of what Jesus says here about giving to God what belongs to God and giving to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, I want to suggest to you four logical options that we have to consider as Christian people. The first option is that God alone is the authority, and there are no other authorities. God alone is the authority, and we are loyal to God at the expense of everything else. Now, that's one view. That is the view of monasticism. The second view is Caesar alone has authority. That would have been the view of the Jews, the Jewish religious leaders at the Lord's trial, when they said, we have no king but Caesar. Now, that's where some people are. The only true legitimate authority, there is no godly authority. The only true authority is the authority of the state. It's interesting, our founding fathers recognized the danger in that view. That's one of the reasons why they establish a whole systems of checks and balances between the three branches of government, the executive, legislative, and judicial branches. Because they recognize that if Caesar has all the authority, Caesar, having absolute power, will be corrupted absolutely. The third position is the authority of God and Caesar. We recognize that, yes, God and Caesar both have authority. It's not just God having authority. It's not just Caesar having authority. God and Caesar have authority, but when the two come into conflict with each other, Caesar is preeminent. And here's the fourth view. And the fourth view is what I would argue is the biblical view. Both God and Caesar have authority. The government has a legitimate authority. Paul makes that point very clear in Romans chapter 13. But God is dominant. In other words, we are to be subject to the authorities, but if that authority teaches us to do something that is contrary to God's authority, then we have to make the choice, and the choice has to be obedience to God, even over and against the state. So both have authority, but one authority is higher than the other. That's the point Jesus was making to Pilate when he said, you would have no authority except that it be given to you from above. So what that means is that we are to be subject to the authorities, but there are times when the Christian not only has an obligation, but they must disobey the state. And here they are. So if you want to know when it's, when it's legitimate to disobey the government, the United States government, the Congress, the President, when is it appropriate to do that? There are basically three areas. First, if the state prohibits evangelism. If the state ever says, you cannot speak in Christ's name, you cannot do that. And let me tell you something, we are fast approaching that. We are fast approaching the time in this nation's history, and this next election is going to be critical. We are fast approaching a point in this nation's history when to say that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only life, the only way to the Father may be regarded as hate speech. And the government says, you must not do it. At that point, 
You and I, as Christian people, have a higher authority to God. Because what did Jesus say? Jesus said, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to all men. In that case, Jesus has told us to go out and preach the gospel. The state has told us we must not preach the gospel. We have a conflict there. And as Christians, we must be obedient to God, even over and against the state. It's interesting to note that that very thing happened to the apostles in Acts chapter 4 and 5. They were ordered by the authorities not to speak in Christ's name, and they refused to obey. They went out and they continued to preach. They were brought in and they were publicly flogged for it. Here's the other area where it is requisite, required for us to disobey the state. If the state mandates some immoral behavior that is contrary to the law of God. Now, a great example of this would have been Nazi Germany during the 1930s when it mandated turning Jews over. Corey Ten Boom, if you've ever read her book, The Hiding Place, and if you haven't, I encourage you to get that book and read it. It's a true story about a young woman and her family and her sisters and how they hid Jews during World War II. That is an immoral mandate from the state. And we have a moral obligation to resist it. If the state mandates immoral behavior contrary to the law of God, you and I have a responsibility to be obedient to God's law over and against the laws of the state. Here's the third place. If the state mandates unjust or unrighteous behavior. The civil rights movement is an example of this when certain people, certain class of people were treated as somehow subordinate to others, we have a responsibility to stand out against that. So these are three areas in which you and I have a moral obligation, if we're going to be obedient to God, to resist and even be disobedient to the state. But, there's always a but, isn't there? I want you to know how we disobey matters. It's never quite as simple as just being disobedient. How we disobey is important. So we may have to disobey the state, but how we do it is critical. Christians are not pragmatists. Do you know what I mean by a pragmatist? Pragmatist is somebody who says the ends justify the means. Doesn't matter how you get there as long as you get there. I want you to understand that is contrary to the Christian gospel. The means are just as important as the ends. If you think you can achieve justice by unjust or unjust means, you've missed the point. So how we disobey is important. The means of achieving our goal are just as important as the ends. So in this particular instance, let me give you two examples. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who I've already mentioned. Bonhoeffer, as you know, many of you have probably read his biography, uh, was right to speak out against the Nazis and to establish an underground church in Germany. Germany tried to shut down all believing churches and establish a state church that accommodated itself to the Nazi regime. But there were those who resisted that and established an underground church. They were right to do that to be faithful to the gospel over the mandates of the state. Martin Niemöller, who was the head of that confessing church, had every right to preach against Adolf Hitler and the rise of Nazism, and he did. But here's something we have to remember. As we do these sorts of things, we have to be prepared to pay the price for them. 
If you're going to stand against the state, and you may have a moral obligation to do so, you have to be prepared to pay the price. That is exactly what happened to Bonhoeffer. He was in prison. Martin Niemöller was in prison for the duration of the war. If you're going to stand against the state, you have to be prepared to pay the price for it. There is a price that goes with faithfulness. But while those men were right in that area, I want to suggest to you that Bonhoeffer, as great a man as he was, and I'm going to quote him in the sermon this Sunday, Bonhoeffer was wrong in another area. Bonhoeffer was executed not because he spoke out against Hitler. Bonhoeffer was executed at the end of the Second World War by hanging because he was involved in a plot to assassinate Hitler. And that is a different matter. The Nazis did not come to power by overthrowing the German government. The Nazis came to power by legitimate means. Now, they may have been corrupt, they may have seduced the people, but whatever it was, Hitler had come to power legitimately. He may have been an evil man, but he came to power legitimately. And Bonhoeffer thought that it was legitimate to murder in order to remove the evil. He was right to work against Hitler. He was not right, I would argue, to murder. See, it's a slippery slope. If it's all right to murder him, then somebody else says, well, I don't agree that that's a legitimate authority. This is one of the reasons why there are laws against assassinating heads of state. Here's another area where I think we can go wrong with this, and it comes much closer to home. It is how we protest the abortion movement in this country. Yesterday was uh, the anniversary of Roe v. Wade. What was that, 1974, I think it was? 1974, I'll be the first one to tell you that I think abortion is a tragedy in this nation. I think biblically what the scriptures teach is that we are knit together in our mother's womb and life is sacred from the moment of conception to the grave for the very, very young and the very, very old. Now, you may know somebody who's gone through an abortion and I'm not here to cast any kind of I'm not here to pass judgment on that. What I am here to say is that I think the practice is a crime. I think it is a tragedy in this nation, and I think that these things are not parasites, as some people have suggested, they are children. I think that it would be to the credit of this nation if we could obliterate abortion, if we could overturn Roe v. Wade. But while I believe that it is a crime, how we sometimes protest the practice of abortion is just as bad almost. In other words, it may be fine to protest abortion, to speak against abortion, to move and work within the, within the governmental systems or even in the culture to abolish abortion. What is not right is what some people do when they go into abortion clinics and they tear the place apart and they destroy the medical instruments and the files or in the case of Florida a few years ago when a man actually went into an abortion clinic and shot the doctors and the nurses. That is not right. It is not right to violate private property in order to achieve an end. It is not right to resist, restrict the free movement of people who want to go into that clinic. It is not right to commit murder in order to stop what you regard as murder. You see how this gets a little complicated? 
The ends and the means are equally important, my friends. And that's what Jesus is trying to teach us. Let me close you with one quote by a man who understood this all too well. Many of you I know are probably familiar with Chuck Colson. I understand that he has family that attends here from time to time. His son attends here. You know that Chuck Colson was special counsel to President Richard Nixon during the Watergate scandal. He was a vicious man, to say the least, in those days. Uh, he was a man who said he would have climbed over the body of his grandmother in order to support the President of the United States. But you all know that he was imprisoned along with a number of other figures, public figures, for the Watergate scandal. And while he was there in prison, he had a conversion experience. And in the years afterward, to the end of his life, just a few years ago, he spent that preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. Founded uh, Prison Mission International, I can't remember the exact name of it, but, but Prison Fellowship International, that's right. Uh, to minister to those who were in prison that they might hear the gospel. So this is a man that understood what it was to stretch the law, to, to do whatever it took in order to achieve the ends. But this is what he said later on. He wrote a wonderful book called Kingdoms in Conflict. If you've never read it, go ahead and get it. And this is what he said, and I think it's so true. He said, in our day, breaking laws to make a dramatic point is the ultimate logic of terrorism not civil disobedience. In our day, the breaking of laws to make a dramatic point is the ultimate logic of what? Terrorists, not civil disobedience. Now, I'm going to show one more scene up there on the screen. And I don't want you to think that I'm making any kind of a political point about this. I just want to use this as an illustration of what Colson has said. Up in Raleigh, North Carolina, just a, about a year ago, you know, there's been this great debate about monuments to the Confederate soldiers in the South and so forth, and um, should they be there? And you know that some of them have been removed from places in Texas, and there's a movement to remove the statues of Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson from Charlottesville, Virginia. I am not here to pass judgment on whether that's right or that is wrong. But I want you to understand what happened up there. I think it's Raleigh or Durham. I can't remember exactly where it was, but it was up in North Carolina. There was a monument on public ground that protesters came, put a rope around the neck of the statue, and pulled it down while the police stood by and did nothing. Now, whether or not you think the Confederate monument should stand on public ground is irrelevant. The point is that this was public property that people felt they had a right to tear down for a greater cause. And so what did they do? They broke the law. And those who were responsible for upholding the law were so fearful of what might happen that they stood by and they did nothing. And let me tell you something, folks, that is a dangerous place to be. We, as Christians, have to do better. And that's what Jesus was saying. We have a responsibility to do better. 
If you believe that the monuments ought to come down, there's a legal way to do it. So there are times when, yes, you have to disobey the state. But how do you disobey the state is just as important as disobeying the state, even when you're being obedient to Christ. Now, having said all of that, April the 15th is coming up. Pay your taxes. <laughs> Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. These are big issues, and we wrestle with them. But grant us the grace to wrestle with them not as Republicans or Democrats, men or women. Grant us the grace to wrestle with these as followers of Jesus Christ. What is most important is that we are obedient to Him, that on that last day when He looks at us, He can say, well done, good and faithful servant. We ask it in His name and for His sake. Amen. Seth. And Sayeth. I know, but the first definition was... <laughs>